On September 11, 1918, the Boston Red Sox defeated the Chicago Cubs to win the Baseball World Series. Babe Ruth played for the Red Sox, and he actually pitched a shutout in Game 1 of that series, although this would be the last time he would play for the Red Sox before he was traded to the New York Yankees. On that same day, the U.S. Navy would report that 26 sailors died in and around Boston from influenza. This was the 1918 pandemic influenza event, what is commonly called the Spanish flu, and officials in Washington at the same time, realizing their fears, reported that Spanish influenza had arrived in the United States and was starting to spread rapidly. By the end of the pandemic in the United States, over a half a million people would die from the effects of the 1918 flu, with estimates of around 40 to 50 million deaths worldwide, or 4% of the global population at that time period. In the next episode, we will focus on pandemic influenza, or pandemic flu for short. We'll explain what a pandemic flu is, its potential impacts in our current time, and what actions are currently being taken to prepare for this. We spoke with Jessica Cole, who was a senior incident-specific planner for the Office of Emergency Preparedness and Response at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. In this role, Ms. Cole is responsible for the coordination of planning for a wide variety of possible threats, such as novel disease outbreaks and radiological incidents. Prior to this position, Ms. Cole was the agency's pandemic influenza coordinator. In this capacity, she was responsible for the planning and revision of the agency's pandemic plan. Let's ride the wave. In a world filled with chaos and a myriad of risks, there is opportunity. You're listening to Riding the Wave, project management for emergency managers, where we discuss how we adapt and rise above those rolling waves of hazards and threats we face and rise to the top. And now your host, the president of Pinnacle Performance Management, Andrew Boyarski. I want to thank you very much, Jessica, for joining the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. So my first question is, with the 100-year anniversary of the 1918 pandemic uh, influenza event, what many people know as the Spanish flu, coming up, and the impacts of that event, as many of our listeners might not be aware, what were the impacts of that event, the specific sort of responses and uh, specific aspects of that uh, type of influenza pandemic, and what might we expect of the potential impacts of a pandemic flu in our present time? All right, so I'm going to step back a little bit and talk about uh, pandemics in general before I talk about the um, very interesting and specific situation in 1918. For those who might not have been following uh, recent news in terms of uh, discussions ongoing about uh, pandemic threat, uh, pandemic influenza is, a, is an influenza virus that has no previous exposure in human communities, and so there's no innate um, immunology to it. That um, and anyone is basically potentially uh, can be can be potentially infected, and which can spread easily from person to person. So it's that last um, element that's really important in terms of classifying a, a pandemic influenza. Other diseases can be a pandemic without being influenza. For example, HIV is a pandemic. Um, there are viruses that aren't influenza that are of concern for becoming a pandemic. For example, SARS or uh, MERS-CoV, which are things that have been in the news relatively recently. But for specifically, uh, we're talking about um, influ influenza, which is related to the seasonal um, influenza virus, but it's different in that we haven't seen it before. 
Um, historically, uh, influenza pandemics happen pretty regularly. Um, just recently, there's the 1918 uh, event, as you mentioned. Also, 1957 and 1968, which most people are, are unaware of. They're, they're not quite as well remembered. Um, people might have been more familiar with the 2009 pandemic or what was known sometimes as the swine flu pandemic. And I would say with changing globalization and increased interaction with host animals like pigs and chickens in certain parts of the world, we can expect to see more potential viruses turning into pandemic strains. And uh, right now the CDC, for example, has a list of what they consider viruses of concern. Um, they include the H5s, the H7s, the H9s. So in the news, you might have heard them, for example, referred to as H5N1 or H7N9, maybe H5N2. These are all strains that are currently circulating where sometimes people become infected and sick, but have not hit that critical stage of being transmissible from human to human the way you would see with a seasonal uh, flu virus. In terms of how a, a pandemic can impact us, it's a global event. Uh, that, is, that is part of the definition of what a pandemic is. It can take place between 12 and 18 months with at least two waves of severe illness um, lasting several weeks each. Different locations will be impacted differently. Um, in fact, during 2009, we had some fascinating uh, data that came out of our surveillance and epidemiology that showed that different boroughs had different levels of disease illness. So we can talk about a, a pandemic being very global, but it also has a very local aspect to it in terms of, of who's ill and how many people are ill. So something for people to consider when they're planning for it. In terms of what it would look like from a medical perspective, um, in the U.S. we can expect um, between 20 and 30 percent of the U.S. population, or actually the global population really, would have um, a clinical illness with estimates anywhere from the moderate to 64 million ill in the U.S. to very severe, which would be like 96 million. Um, in terms of what that might look like in terms of death for a moderate pandemic, maybe let's say 48,000, which is in line with what we see every year with seasonal flu. Um, and from very severe, it can be almost 2 million. And that's just in, in the U.S. alone. So these are very concerning numbers, but I would like to highlight the vast majority of people get the flu, get sick, and do recover. So as much as we like to focus on kind of these, these, these sort of like heavy numbers, I do want to kind of highlight that the flu is something that, that we can recover from. One of the things to keep in mind, it's different in a pandemic versus a seasonal flu, is that there is no vaccine. Uh, there is new guidance coming out from the federal government that we can expect a vaccine in approximately three months. That's less time. Historically, there has been a lot of money and, and funding and support for uh, new ways to do vaccine uh, production, tested and uh, vetted the same way that any seasonal flu is, seasonal flu vaccine. But it still takes time from identification of the actual strain that infects humans to production. And so it's, it's several months, which means that you're going to have a wave of pandemic strain influenza where we have no medical countermeasure other than antivirals. In terms of larger impacts, it's everything. It's, it's global, it's social, it's medical, it's emotional, it's financial, both at the individual level and also the global level, with estimates currently at uh, between uh, 550 to 570 billion or 0.07 of global uh, GDP. These are very concerning numbers in terms of the larger impact on um, the economic and social structures. You know, people talk about supply chain, but it's also people's ability to pay their bills if they can't go to work. In terms of 1918, you know, the only real difference between what happened in 1918 uh, and now is that um, 
you know, the individual care and treatment of somebody with flu hasn't really changed very much. We do have vaccines now, which is huge. We do have antivirals now, which is recommended, especially for people who might be in a, in a particularly vulnerable category. But um, a lot of the same kinds of impacts in terms of people being out sick, about um, businesses having to close, about uh, recommendations for closures of public events, these are all things we would expect to see during a current pandemic that we also saw in 1918. The one thing to kind of keep in mind about 1918, it is, was considered a very severe pandemic. Whereas 2009, which was a deadly pandemic, wasn't as severe, it was a much more mild uh, pandemic, but still caused a lot of economic and personal medical impact. So these are all different ways that a pandemic can uh, impact us. You know, we don't know until a strain emerges who's actually most at risk. So during 1918, when we talk about impacts, it was young, healthy, working adults, which is not something we normally associate with flu. During 2009, we saw a lot of illness among children, and pregnant women was a category that uh, emerged. Well, we are thinking about a lot of different impacts, but it would be something potentially new. It could be uh, people who are older. It could, again, be young, healthy, working adults. It really depends on the strain, um, and the, the kinds of ways that people might become ill from it are, are, remain to be seen. So this is part of the work that we do, is preparing for all eventualities. How is the New York City Health Department uh, currently preparing the city for the impacts of a potential pandemic flu? So there's a lot of different ways that the health department, um, both sort of the ways that you would expect the health department um, to plan for these things, and also ways maybe that I think people would be surprised to find out. Um, we do do things like surveillance and epidemiology. That's a very big part of our public health mission here. What does that mean? Well. What does illness look like in Queens versus Staten Island versus Manhattan? Are there places that are more significantly impacted? And can we communicate that to healthcare uh, providers in those areas and throughout the city in terms of, you know, this is it. This is when we have the most illness in the city. Uh, it's also keeping an eye out for potential risk of um, antivirals not working, which would be not a good thing during a pandemic. So we like to keep an eye on how people are responding to that. Um, it would be looking for populations who would most likely be more, more impacted by a virus. So that's how we found out, for example, we saw more pregnant women who were becoming um, sicker as a result of the 2009 pandemic. So there's a lot of that sort of the standard, what you think of the health department is doing. Um, but we do everything from planning for how we're going to do vaccine distribution um, and you know, the monitoring even just the supply of antivirals in the city to keep an eye out for spot shortages and also seeing how we can um, increase availability for all New Yorkers, regardless of the ability to pay. Um, one of the things that's a hallmark of a pandemic is about a half of those who are clinically ill will seek some form of medical attention which is a huge strain on an already strained uh, healthcare system. There will be a lot of public messaging about when is the appropriate time to go seek medical care. Again, just like most people will survive from a flu or flu pandemic, most people can actually treat themselves at home and do not require medical treatment. So these are the kinds of messages we will be really pushing in addition to the sort of standard public health messages we push in terms of hand washing, staying home if you're ill, um, you know, covering your mouth and nose when you cough with your arm, those sorts of messages about you know, protecting yourself and your family. Uh, but we do work with the healthcare system in, in terms of trying to identify how to surge their capacity and also even keeping an eye out of sentinel sites for potential um, unique strains from people who are traveling from areas where these, these viruses of concern exist but haven't actually turned into a pandemic. Some of the other different areas that we also foc focus on that aren't standard sort of 
what people think of as public health or what the health department might do is really focusing on whole community planning, especially for residents in New York who might have access or functional needs. Uh, we are trying to consider the pandemic impacts uh, with an eye of eye towards various forms of healthcare disparities based on race, ethnicity, ethnicity or economic differences. And one of the things that can easily be forgotten when planning for such a, a large event like a pandemic is that not all people will be impacted the same, not just medically, but also that there might be barriers to their ability to get healthcare access or messaging. And so during um, the kinds of work that I specifically do is looking to make sure that we don't forget that there are other ways that we need to, to reach out to people in New York City um, during the pandemic. Can you tell me more about how uh, the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene coordinates its efforts with healthcare organizations? So, you know, the health, the health department doesn't actually... Um, you know, tell um, the healthcare system how to be a healthcare system. We don't actually regulate them, uh, but we actually we are close partners, especially at the system level in New York City, and and um, working with everything from acute care centers. There's a lot of provider outreach that would be happening um, to help uh, you know doctors know how to care for their patients and what to look for and where they can receive help in terms of information. Um, we work with the, the, the different kinds of healthcare systems and deliveries, so uh, you know everything from nursing homes to uh, you know, adult care facilities, and reaching out to these sorts of um, urgent care centers um, that have popped up since 2009. So there's a lot of outreach and, and communication and coordination that's been happening at the city that we do through uh, the New York City Office of Emergency Management and some structures that we have there. Um, but also um, here at the health department, we have a lot of really good partnerships um, with the, the coordinators at these different facilities. And uh, you know, they've been very involved. Of course, the pandemic would impact them tremendously in terms of care. So they, they uh, you know, especially with the coordination work we saw with Ebola and Zika, you know, they, they uh, you know, we work hand in hand a lot of ways in terms of emerging, monitoring emerging issues and trying to support them the best way that we can. You mentioned disease surveillance, epidemiology uh, work that's carried out by uh, the health department. Is that all, that's also information that's shared from healthcare providers back to uh, DOHMH in some way, shape, or form? Yeah, there are various uh, mechanisms we do that um, through our surveillance systems. Um, you know, the reality is that uh, once a pandemic is global, a pandemic is global, and so I think that one of the things people might expect is every person who has flu will be tested. Well, there's no reason to. If you have an influenza-like illness during a pandemic, the assumption is going to be you have a pandemic influenza. The treatment isn't particularly different than you would for nor have normal flu. But if you are on the list that we identify of people who have more concerning maybe comorbidities, other illnesses, like, for example, asthma, or if you're pregnant, like we saw with 2009, we would be reaching out to providers um, and community partners who do tap into those particular populations um, more stringently. So we would combine what we see from a surveillance and epidemiology perspective, but also with our outreach to try to target those populations too. Jessica, can you tell me a little bit more about some of the drills, exercises, and those types of activities that evaluate uh, plans? Yeah, so this is actually one of the stronger partnerships we have with um, the healthcare community uh, and healthcare systems is to do various kinds of drills and exercises, and they can be at the facility level or they can be system level. So everything from, you know, kind of a mystery patient drill where we'll have somebody with an illness, with a, a certain kinds of symptoms and a certain travel history, and, you know, to test 
to see how long it takes for the, the facility to pick that up and to appropriately identify and isolate. Um, and also, you know, to, to large, you know, everything from pediatric drills, how do we deal with um, large numbers of ill children and surging for that, or um, just how does a healthcare system uh, deal with, um, you know, uh, you know, the surge issues related to a pandemic. So we'll test out at a, a notional level what it looks like for them to um, relieve some of the, the pressure that the facility has by, you know, canceling elective procedures and um, having people leave who are already slated to be leaving, you know, expedited um, discharges to clear beds, um, and also the different ways that they can surge their staff. What type of advice would you provide to prepare for pandemic flu? Right, so as grim as all that our previous conversation was in terms of numbers and pandemic influenza sounds scary, and especially when you talk about 1918, I actually have a lot of good news about these exactly this issue in terms of preparedness. Um, a lot is being done at the city, state, federal, and, and global level to plan for a pandemic, both um, at the private and public sector. I personally have been doing pandemic planning for over 10 years. So I've seen a lot of you know changes and nuance. I've also seen a pandemic. Um, so I can definitely tell you that there's been a lot of progress in terms of how we view and message pandemic issues. Uh, but from an organizational perspective, um, we have learned a lot from past events, not just 2009. We've also learned from Ebola and Zika in terms of messaging. I mean, that's a little bit more of a public health issue. But what it means is you do not, as a corporation or an entity, have to reinvent the wheel when it comes to messaging. There will be a lot of really good publicly accessible messages that come out from places like the health department or from the CDC that you can tap into that's trusted and reliable and not something that you have to figure out from, from scratch, essentially. You know, again, it would be doing things like stressing preventative measures, especially staying home if ill, um, so you don't infect other people, um, and how to practice self-care, when's appropriate to seek medical care. But in terms of the kinds of specific actions organizations can take, I, you know, one of the things I personally stress when I talk about pandemic um, issues to continuity groups and um, businesses is, you know, having more flexible work abilities like telecommuting and expanded leave for people who are ill. You know, one of the, the personal costs that come is that if you're ill, your child's ill, your partner's ill, now you're looking at two, four, six weeks of illness in the family. And, you know, that can be a heavy burden in terms of financially if you're not working. Not everyone has uh, multiple ways for people to, to care for loved ones. Um, in addition to you being sick yourself, you might be out 10 days from a, a flu. Flu is a, a serious illness. I also tell people, you know, be real present in the life of their staff. Uh, this is, can be emotionally um, straining, financially straining. There's a lot of uncertainty. Even during a, a mild pandemic like 2009, we, we were seeing signs of that. Um, being able to provide actionable and in, empowering messages to your staff that matter is something that looks good for you and is also good public health practice, right? So um, I wouldn't say invest in uh, portal monitors. Those don't work in uh, pandemic flu. That doesn't really make sense in terms of the way a pandemic works. So giving messaging to your staff that, yes, it's okay for you to stay home, you know, that that's something that can mean a lot you know, mentally and financially to somebody, and also protect other of your, your staff members from potentially getting ill from, from somebody. Another thing that I like to stress about pandemic planning um, is there's, a, there's a, 
unexpected benefit to organizations when they do pandemic planning. I think they think of it as, oh God, it's so much, uh, it's, it's very catastrophic. It's, it is, but it isn't. Um, you do have, it's not like a, um, a no notice event. You will generally have uh, awareness ahead of time when it's happening. So you'll be able to, you know, pull up your, your machinery of response would be one way to look at it. Also, any pandemic planning is just good continuity planning because the kinds of things that you would do for a pandemic as a scenario are also the kinds of things you might see for a major coastal storm in terms of staff outages and needing flexible um, commuting uh, policies, any kind of event where you might have 20 or 30% of your staff out at a time. Uh, it's a pandemic and also it could be something else. So it, it covers a lot of things that people in this industry should be looking at anyway in a way that's accessible to explain. It's not just enough to say, oh, we need a plan for staff outages. We need a plan for staff outages because during a pandemic, we have this potential of this many people out, or during a coastal storm, we could see 50% of our staff not here. You know, so these are the kinds of messages you can have to your, your leadership. Well, this conversation has been very informative, and uh, I want to thank you very much for sharing this information uh, with our listening audience, and uh, I want to thank you for taking part in the podcast. Oh, thank you, and hopefully they, uh, they got some good tidbits out of this. We spoke with Jessica Cole, who was a senior incident-specific planner for the Office of Emergency Preparedness and response at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. You may find out more information at www.pinnacleperformancemanagement.com. At Riding the Wave, we like to get your feedback, and you may contact me directly at my email address, andrew at pinnacleperformancemanagement.com. Thanks for listening and come back soon for our next podcast. You've been listening to Riding the Wave, hosted by Andrew Boyarski, president of Pinnacle Performance Management and clinical associate professor in emergency and project management at NYU and John Jay College. All thoughts are his own.